3: It's great to be with you.
0: Yeah, so you and I uh, connected through our mutual friend Dave Vanderveen, who was a former guest here on The Unmistakable Creative and absolutely fascinating and (laughs) uh, interesting human being. So I figured anybody who knows him uh, and is friends with him must be interesting as well. And when I started doing some digging on your work, uh, I was just so taken aback by how much depth you go into and how you ask some very thought-provoking questions about life and what matters. So I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, how you have arrived at this rather unusual career and this way of seeing the world in this story.
3: <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, you know, I probably, I was curious way back. I mean, I can remember having discussions with my parents early on. I was just always interested. Why are we here? What is this? What are we doing? What? Why does everybody just take it for granted that we're here when this is the this is the weirdest thing ever to be a human being and being alive, and it's quite awesome as well. So I was probably drawn to the big questions. My parents used to take us to church, and what always struck me was, I would look around during the church service and I would think, this should be the place where people are talking about the biggest questions of hope and meaning and justice and creativity, and what are we doing here? But it, it was always so boring, honestly. And, you know, like later in life, you sort of look back and ask, and you see sort of seeds of your path early on. But, but I think something within me said, I'm going to change that. So I was in a band in college. The band broke up, as college bands do, because everybody had to get jobs. And then I decided to go to seminary, and I actually became a pastor, and then I started a church, my wife and I and some friends when we were 28. And it was basically just, how, could you create a community where people could be from whatever background they're from, and could you have a place that had lots of room for doubt and questions and discovery and um, disbelief, and could you act on behalf of those who are poor and oppressed, and could you do um, things to affect real change in the world? And the church, like, I mean, it went 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 6,000 people, 7,000 people, somebody gave us a mall that we took over, And a couple years in, I was probably 30 or 31. It was 10,000 people. Um, And it was like a giant experiment. And then uh, I started writing books and going on tour and making short films. And it's been an awesome ride from there, to give it all, sort of say it all in a nutshell.
0: Hmm. Well, let me ask you this. You, you mentioned that you've always been very curious and you're drawn to these bigger questions. And those are really big questions for somebody that young to be wrestling with. So I'm interested in, in what kind of formative experiences you had as a child and what kind of parents you had that would lead you to that kind of questioning so early in your life.
3: I know, that's a great question. Well, I would say that my parents
0: my parents were always
3: Intel, I would say intellectually restless they were always I remember my dad cutting articles out from the newspaper and saying you ought to check this out or I know there were always books floating around the house so they they loved to discuss they loved ideas that, and and we were raised as kids um, what do you think what do you think about that we laughed a lot but but the exchange of ideas, and then what did it mean to actually live them? And then I saw them. I remember people who had just gone through a horrible divorce. My parents would take them in. They would sit with them and help them through difficult times. They would, they, they had a vibrant sort of engagement with the world. And I think I probably just picked up, we're here, and we get to help people, and we get to learn things, and we get to explore. Um, Somewhere in there, I sort of picked that up and it stuck with me.
0: Hmm. So, you know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is this is not normal, what you're talking about. You know, <laughs> it's far from normal. Like, I, nobody is raised like this in my mind. In fact, most of us are raised with do as you're told, keep your head down. And in that process, I think that. You know, We experience what I call one of the occupational hazards of adulthood, which is losing our curiosity, losing our creativity, yeah. and losing that reckless abandon and optimism. And yeah. I, I just want to hear what you think about that from somebody who's been raised you know, with another perspective. Yeah. And why is this so pervasive in our culture?
3: Yeah, you know, I've ne- it's funny that you asked that. I've never thought about it this way, but my dad, his dad died when he was eight of cancer. And then when my dad was in high school, his brother was killed in a freak accident and he my my dad was just my dad and his mom and so he had this extraordinary sense of like life is a gift and it can be taken from you you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so he like lived just full out Um, he was always trying things he was always let's go let's go here Let's build this. Let's take this apart. Um, and he would, as kids, we were, he would always say, you're my pride and joy. We had this profound sense that he enjoyed us. And my mom as well. That, And I think somehow we picked up, you go do something, make something, try something. It might work. It might not. It's not a big deal. Just keep going. Um You're here, and we're alive, and we're breathing, so let's do something with it. And I I somehow picked that up, and then when I met my wife, she had this similar sort of sense. When we first got married, we had a very strong sense that the whole thing is an adventure. So for us, marriage wasn't like, oh, how can we not kill each other? You know what I mean? How can we not break apart? It was life is an adventure. I found this person, we found each other to go on the adventure with. Let's try some stuff and see what happens. So for me, it's always kind of been like a giant art project.
0: (laughs) Wow. Okay, so I I love that. so much
3: more enjoyable.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I love that whole approach of treating life as an art project. Yeah. I want to ask you a bit more about this sort of notion of curiosity, reckless abandon, and creativity. And I I realized, you know, I, I started... Listening to the Robcast, just when I knew we were about to talk, and I I heard something in a conversation that you had with Elizabeth Gilbert that really struck me, where you started talking about your daughter playing in a garage, uh, in a band, and just singing oh, yes. with like just absolute freedom of expression, yes. and you saying that you never wanted her to lose that, and you hope that she maintains that throughout her life. You know, a lot of parents listen to this show who homeschool kids with the content for this show, and. I can't help but wonder if their kids are destined to lose that, and how in the world can we prevent that from happening as adults and as parents?
3: Right, 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 right. Great question.
0: You know, what happened to me—so I was—I
3: I became a pastor. I was done with seminary by, like, age 24, so I was doing, I was doing visits to hospital. I was going to visit people in jail by, like, 25 years of age. I was doing weddings—I mean, funerals for people who died of AIDS by, like— age 25, back when that was something that was still sort of people didn't know what to do with. So I saw lots and lots of suffering up close because my life as a pastor, as a pastor, what people do is they invite you into the center of their lives when everything falls apart. And so on any given day, I might conduct a funeral. I might be visiting somebody in prison. I might be standing with a young couple in the ICU unit over a clear plastic box that their two-week-old kid is in, hooked up to tubes, fighting for her life. Um, and what it did to me is it, it sort of etched in my psyche that this thing is really fragile and lots of things can go wrong. And I think for so many people, think about the homeschool parents, there can be easily become this pr- just tremendous anxiety about what if things go wrong, what if things go wrong. I saw lots of things go wrong up close many, many, many times over. So I, I think when we say like we're going to make sure nothing goes wrong, stuff is going to fall apart, it's going to break into a thousand pieces, it's going to catch on fire, it's going to break your heart. So let's, let's just begin there. Um, and the real wisdom comes when you realize the whole thing could end tomorrow. So let's enjoy today. That's where all the great wisdom traditions go. Mm -hmm. And this got sort of beaten into me early on by the experiences I was having.
0: Okay. So one of the things that always interested me is that I think we can intellectually understand this notion that life is a gift. Life is short, right? Right. And why is it that it takes, you know, catastrophes for us to make us truly realize that? Like something horrible has to happen before we really – understand it and and really live it in our bones, as opposed to intellectually understanding it. And I just want to hear what you'd have to say about
3: that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I told a story on my uh, podcast recently about, I did this event with Bishop Tutu and Dalai Lama. Uh And when you're with them, and these two have seen some of the worst suffering humans can do to each other. When you're with them, you're not struck with how heavy and heartbreaking everything is. There is a lightness to Tutu and Lama that is Unbelievable. It fills a room. And having been in, in rooms with them, it's almost like when you've seen it all up close, you either shut down in absolute despair or it breaks your heart in so many pieces that you move to this whole other place of gratitude. Um, and I, I'm telling you, over the years, sitting with countless people as a pastor, the ones who had really, really suffered, it was so many of them, it broke them and pushed them into this whole other way of living um, of just profound thankfulness. And not like a cheesy, hey, everything's great, but like a, no, 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 you don't understand, this breath itself is a miracle. And, And especially in Western culture, which is often designed to avoid suffering, Suffering has a, a number of extraordinary things present within it that if you skip it or avoid it or deny it, you miss out on.
0: Okay, so I want to talk about two things here. Uh, one is bringing that lightness into our own lives. Yeah. And what are those extraordinary things that come from suffering? Because I think a lot of people you say that and say, yeah, you know what, that this really sucks right now. I, I'm going through hell.
3: Yeah, and I and always it will only you'll only move to some place of lightness by fully feeling all of the hell and ways in which it sucks. This is not some sort of easy path. Um, But it's interesting in in all of the wisdom traditions, how you deal with obstacles and suffering is a central thing that you're taught early on. Um, I mean, in other cultures, Rites of passage and being discipled by a master were all just part of life. If someone's going to teach you how to handle suffering and heartbreak and adversity, because they're central to navigating life, but it's like almost like there's a whole wisdom tradition we just don't have. We teach people how to get a four-year liberal arts education so they can work at Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. We have like a you know grow up and get a house and don't rent own because it's better to build up equity, et cetera, et cetera. And then people get a job and they get a cubicle and then they realize there's a corner office with a window. I got to get there. And they just climb the ladder only to wake up bored. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think sometimes you just have to challenge the whole system and ask, what is it that would get you up in the morning with joy? The Japanese actually have a word for this. A I-K-I-G-A-I. I-K-I-G-A-I. I, it, your a is that which gets you up in the morning. And so it was always understood that when you no longer have an Aki guy, you're dead. Even if you're still alive, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, so we sort of um, in Western culture, a lot of people have lost this sense of you need something that will get you up in the morning, that brings you joy, that can contribute to the common good, and it may involve making lots of money. It might not. Mm-hmm. That's all part of it.
0: Okay. You brought up something that I think is really interesting and something that I've I've been wrestling with personally for the last year or two. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned that our school system basically prepares us for a life that is entirely scripted with almost no room for serendipity. And given the work that you do, I am interested in why you think our school system isn't encouraging us to ask these bigger questions that ultimately determine the quality of our lives.
3: Yeah, right. Well, first off, I would get a shout out to all the great teachers out there. I, you know, a great teacher can change the course of your life. But, um, well, here's... Well, think about this. Think about the Super Bowl. The one time our tribe gathers, when the most amount of people are gathered for the common event. We could probably argue the Super Bowl is that event. And at the Super Bowl, what is the thing that everybody talks about? Some I always say it's a series of commercials interrupted by a game. <laughs> um, but if you... Think about the Super Bowl when our tribe gathers nowadays. The one time we gather around the tribal fire, the fire is a square box in the corner of the living room, and we gather to be pitched things that we could buy. Uh So, in ancient cultures... your culture, your tribe, had a story that kept you together, a story about caring for the earth, a story about each other. It might have been a story about how our tribe is the best, let's go kill the other tribes. Whatever that story was, if you were to visit our Western culture and say, what is the animating story, it's probably, hey, you can buy stuff. You know what I mean? Uh (laughs) Like the one time we gather, it's to be pitched on things we can buy. Our tribal fire is a 30-second commercial. Um, and in some ways, you know, I've done all these studies that up, up to $80,000 a year in salary, people get happier. And then from 80,000 on, there's no marked improvement in happiness. All these interesting new, all this new, you know, happiness research. Uh Um, so I think you just have to begin with what is the thing that you do that, brings you life. I always make a distinction between success and craft. Success is I'm going to build it bigger. I'm going to make more money. We're going to off. We're going to open 10 more branches. Craft is the art. It's the thing. Craft is the thing that you are doing, that you are getting better at each day, whether it's a therapist or an entrepreneur or an oil painter or a teacher. And the problem with success is success asks, what can I get? Craft says can you believe I get to do this and often I'm sure you're the same way you interact with somebody within three minutes you can tell whether they're pursuing success or whether they're pursuing craft which is the sense that I have this thing I do in the world and I'm going to be learning how to do it better and better for the rest of my life and craft is interesting finding a craft and working it now that's interesting success is basically you climb the mountain and then you find yourself realizing this is it like now I got (laughs) What What is this? Um, so I think it's, once again, you have to challenge much larger things that we've all been handed, scripts we've all been handed that don't work.
0: Okay, so why do you think that in our culture there's such an emphasis on success over craft, and how do we challenge scripts that don't work?
3: Well, I'll often... It's interesting how many people that I meet with who you just simply ask them is it working for you how many people will say no and generally they believe there's a whole bunch of things they need to be happy which means they have to kill themselves working to fund it and when you start saying to them now what is a life that you could get it, that you could find some joy in i cannot tell you how many people i've talked to who they actually can articulate it. You know what? I I don't want to be the CEO. I really liked selling. I like I liked working in sales. I was so much happier then, but everything told them climb the ladder or you're going to be looked at as a loser. So they just kept climbing and actually one of the earlier rungs brought them a great deal of joy. So oftentimes I just keep asking questions what is it about this pace? I just did a, a, a retreat recently for some business leaders, and you'd love this. A lawyer raises his hand. So here's what was so fascinating. He raises his hand and he says, I've been growing my law firm. I just opened an office two hours away. I just hired a human resources person. I got this person working for me. I got that person working for me. Way." And he says, and I have so much pressure and there's so much on my shoulders and it's just exhausting. And I just stopped him and I said, who made this? And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, who did this? And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, who created this weight that is now on your shoulders? And he said, well, that's just what the firm is now. And I said, but who, who owns the firm and who's building the firm and who hired all these people? And he says, well, I did. So I said, you picked up a boulder and put it on your shoulders of your own making. And what was so interesting to me is when I said, how many employees do you want? How many hours a week do you want to work? How big do you want the thing to be? How many headaches do you want? He had never, he hadn't begun with, what exactly do I want this to be and what kind of life do I want? You know what I mean? Uh And what's interesting to me is how many people I've met who are smart educated on it, really, really gifted building things because they've looked around them and seen, well, this is what everybody else is kind of building. So I'm going to build one of those. And when you stop and say, but like, what kind of life do you want? It's almost like the system says, this is how the game is played and not, how would you like to play the game? Would you like less money and more time? Would you like less employees and more headspace? How are you going to do this? It was just such a fascinating moment. And I've seen this again and again,
0: really basic questions people aren't asking. Why do you think it is that uh, somebody who starts out with a very clear vision of what they want can lose their way? And this is a a deeply personal question for me because it happened to me.
3: Yeah, well... The voices around us can be really loud, Hmm. especially if you have a mentor, a boss, um, professors, parents, siblings. The voices around us can be really loud and really persuasive. And unless you have some sort of practice where you are constantly asking, "What what is my compass? What is my true self? telling me, unless unless you have some sort of regular practice of listening to what's happening deep inside of you, the voices around a person can just be so loud. Um, and I'm, I'm so interested when I meet people who are really thriving and I ask them about their weekly practice, or tell me about a week, tell me about a day, tell me about the rhythms of your month. They always, every one of them, they have something they mention like, oh, I fly fish on Saturdays or, oh, I surf. or I. And whenever you say why, they always say because it's where I remind myself who I am. It's where I get grounded. It's where I get centered. Otherwise, it's just a whole bunch of clatter coming at you. It's just chatter. I will sometimes say to people when they're telling me, but, but we have to, and I'll say, wait is that you talking? Who is that talking? And often people will say, oh my word, you're right. That's my brother. That's my mom. That's my boss. That's my, you know what I mean? They'll say so many times we're, we're, we're reading from a script and it's somebody else's line. and we think it's ours.
0: (laughs) It's easy to do. So, Would you say that having that sort of a practice enables you to trust your inner voice and your inner compass more than the external voices that become very loud and persuasive?
3: Yeah, yeah. And then part of it is you have your internal voice. And then over time, I was fortunate enough, I found people who would tell me the truth about myself because they believed in me. So I have a friend named Tom. We probably talked on the phone every day for a decade he was just one of those people who he he could call me on my stuff, but I knew he believed in me, so I would I was open to it. I was actually thirsty for it. Um, but it's the people around you who know when they tell you the truth, they're actually helping you discover who you really are. Um, and when you find those people, you have to first off buy them lunch. Pick up the pack, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and lots of people are very honored when you say to them, I really respect you. Uh, the life that you live is something that I, I just have such admiration for. Can I take you to lunch and just ask you questions? Um, who isn't moved by that? and doesn't want to help somebody. Um, but sometimes people are wrestling. When I do these retreats, a number of people are asking really serious questions about their path. And I'll say... You know who are you talking about this with? Who are you processing it with? And they'll say, "Oh, this is the first time I've ever even mentioned it." and you think, "Oh my word, you're miles from home in a room full of a hundred strangers, and you just brought this up. You know what I mean mm-hmm. like who who are the people in your actual sphere of life where you can go to them and say, "Here are some things I'm really struggling with. Can you?" Can I just throw it? I'll often say to people I, I need um, to listen to, I'll just say, is it okay if I throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see if any of it sticks? <laughs> <laughs> and um, whatever metaphor helps you can be incredibly life-giving. Mm.
0: You know, when I hear you say that, I even think that we have to choose those people carefully. And sometimes they don't end up being, you know, the people closest to us, you know, family or whoever it might be. You know, Brian, who is my business partner, and I have talked about this idea of validation. And he said, you know, you should really be selective about where you choose to get any of your validation from. And sometimes it's not going to come from the people who are your family or the people that you love.
3: Absolutely. I actually, um, if somebody cannot celebrate who you are Your influence, blessing, success, power, abundance, whatever it is, if they cannot celebrate the fullness of who you are in your path, then they can't be your friend. Mm -hmm. It's that simple. So the friend who's like, must be nice, gone. Or they get moved to the outer ring. It's just that simple. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Boy, I'd like to have that kind of life. Sorry, thanks for playing. Mm -hmm. Um, People have... Oftentimes, people have around them incredibly toxic, draining relationships that they call friendships. If that person isn't totally have your back and can't celebrate everything you are and are becoming and all of the fullness of who you are, then that's not a friendship, no matter what you call it. Or you're going to have to at least have some boundaries around that friendship because that's not going to work.
0: You know, it's, it's funny because i'm i'm reading a book right now and <clears throat> I, I you know the the idea of, of voices that are external is fresh on my mind because that's yeah. the opening part of the book uh the opening part of the book is called the paddle out and i said you know a lot of voices get really loud when you're standing on shore about to paddle out warning you about all the dangers that are in the water <laughs> yeah. and i remember that i started this project called 100 reasons you should hire me that was the beginning of of what is now existing today and I couldn't come up with a hundred reasons why anybody should hire me. So I scrapped the project. And I remember thinking, I said, you know, if I had let the people who thought I was an idiot for doing that determine the future, you and I wouldn't be talking right now, Rob. <laughs> and that was seven years ago.
3: <laughs> That's fantastic.
0: Damn. Well, <laughs> let me ask you this. Uh, you, one of the things that you had mentioned to me was that you've had a very in-depth view into suffering, probably one that most of us never get, and a perspective that most of us never can really appreciate and understand unless we've really lived it. But the question that raises for me is, why are there certain people who become victims of their circumstances and let their circumstances become their identity, and others who don't?
3: Right, right. And I just happened, because of as a pastor, I just happened to see almost get a front row seat for a, and I'm honestly, suffering makes people better or it tends to make them bitter. And trying to predict who will grow and become more grounded and mature and open to life And who will shrink back and become more brittle and play more of a victim and be more small? Honestly, it's one of the great mysteries of humanity is I can never tell. Um, I think consciousness and how we respond to the events that come our way is one of the great mysteries. Why do some people, they become so inspiring and expansive and they just go to a whole new leather, level and other people seem to stumble around in the dark for years to come. Mm-hmm. I, I can't for the life of me predict it. I used to think I could, you yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's one of the great mysteries of humanity, uh, our consciousness and why different people respond different ways. You can have two alcoholics and you organize an intervention for each of them and all the people who love them most gather in the living room. And say, we love you, alcohol is ruining your life, we'll do anything to help you get help. And the one says, thank you, this means so much, can I get help, can I go to a meeting tonight? And the other one says, F you, I'll do what I want. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And especially over the years as a pastor, seeing people hungry for more meaning, for more depth, for more connection... And some people stay and they grow and they do the hard work. They do their interior work. And other people, it gets hard and they're gone. They just, it's, it is seriously, it is the great mystery at the heart of the human experience. And anybody who tells you they can fix it or I've got a three step plan <laughs> to make people, they're selling you something. <laughs> or this curriculum or these seven steps will guarantee you. I instantly am like, no
0: not that cut and dried. Uh You know, I I wanted to ask you actually, uh, when we talked about sort of a spiritual practice to learn how to manage, uh, the external voices and and tune them out. One of the things that interested me about your work is that you're an avid surfer and and we both share that in common. Surfing has deeply influenced my life. It fundamentally changed the direction of it and altered the course of it. And I'd really love for you to chat a little bit about, Uh, how surfing has impacted, uh, the way you see the world and and the way you handle things.
3: Yeah. Oh man. Where do we even start? Uh, (laughs) Well, what's interesting is, you know, our our friend Dave Uh Vanderveen will will often say to me, you know, the salt, the salt content of the ocean is the same as the salt content in the water in your mother's womb. That should tell you something. (laughs) And I don't know if that's true, but it works so well Uh uh, as a metaphor. Um, There's something about... Well, first off, you're disconnected from your phone and you're not on land. So I'm sure you've had this sense. You are in some ways open to the world in ways that you aren't when someone can text you at any second. So I think just the discipline of detaching. And then there's this patience because you cannot control a set. You cannot control the period, the interval. The waves might come, they may not. And it reminds you that there are forces larger than you in the universe, and that's good for the soul. We tend to become as big as whatever we give worth to. And if ultimate worth we give to money, we tend to be as big as money. If we give worth to compassion, then we tend to get that much bigger. So something about the ocean, it opens you up. It calms you down. Um, That's a lot of power coming at you. And the power can crush you. Like you say, the hold down can be brutal. Mm -hmm. But if you move... There's this one great line by a surfer. He moved in cooperation with the wave. So it's like there's all this power, but you have to submit and work in cooperation to it. I mean, the metaphors could go on and on. I feel like it fills me up with the thing that I need to go do the work that I do, whatever that spirit tank is. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like you have your intellect, you have your physical health, you have all the day-to-day responsibilities. Then you have this almost like a spirit tank, which is some days you're up, some days you're down. Some days you're filled with life and it's like spilling over onto those around you and some days it's dark and you sort of have this, man, just putting one foot in front of the other is difficult. But for me, surfing fills that tank that like, is where spirit resides, which is just life in its purest form. Here we are. Here we go. We get to do this. Yeah, it's it's just like you said. It's been life changing for me. Wow.
0: Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears because we've spent a time a lot of time just exploring a lot of very deep questions, and I want to actually talk about the work that you do. Okay. Uh, one of the first places I want to start is by asking you about how. Uh, being in a band actually influenced the way that you approached building a church?
3: Yeah. Well, what's interesting about being in a band is when you're at a club and there's a bunch of bands playing that night, if one of the bands sucks, you go out on the curb or you go to the bar and you get a drink. You Uh rarely stand through a band that isn't engaging you. You'll go out and you'll wait for the next band. So when I sort of cut my teeth in a band, I wanted to engage everybody to the back of the room. To me, you had these few moments to draw everybody in to create some flow or like a big living room to bring everybody in together and take them somewhere. And so I would write, I was a lead singer. I'd write these songs that meant something to me and I wanted to share them with people. And for me, if you were there just because you're supposed, nobody was there just because they're supposed to, everybody was there because you wanted to see a show that you would be saying to your friends, "How great was that? You missed it. Oh, you missed a great one. It was a happening." So when I got into being a pastor, I had I the, the idea that people would just go to church because you're supposed to just blew my mind. Like, why would you go do something just because you're supposed to? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what you don't do that in the other area? Uh, <laughs> yeah. What in the world? So for me, it should be great. It should be fascinating. It should be provocative. It should be inspiring. It should It should unite everybody's hearts. So when I started the church and I started preaching, for me, the sermon was like this art form. It's like guerrilla theater, performance art. It was like for everybody. It was not religious propaganda. I was not trying to make somebody a particular religion. Uh I'm a pastor out of the Christian tradition, but my understanding, if you're true to your tradition, it will be welcoming to all traditions. So I was like, let's. for me, the sermon was this, how do you create public space where everybody together can be reminded of our common humanity, can wrestle with all their doubt and all the stuff that's just sitting right below the surface? How do you create a safe space where you can be exactly who you are? And you might even get some guidance and direction on some steps you could take to step into your your true path. and. So that's what I brought into it. And if it's not going to be great, then don't kid yourself. Go do something else. But don't waste my time.
0: (laughs) Okay, so I ask that for very personal reasons. One of my big gripes about religion, especially having grown up, you know, with being Hindu, is that it's incredibly time-consuming. And, of course, as you mentioned, really boring. Yeah. Uh, You know, three-hour ceremonies that really are not that interesting or not that engaging. It was one of the big reasons that I've had a very difficult time embracing the notion of being religious. Right. 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 And I'm interested in in two things. One, why you think religious propaganda is such a big part of religion or or so connected to how people perceive religion in the world. Uh, And then also why is this notion that, you know, this should be engaging. It's a place where we ask deep and meaningful questions about life. It could be much more entertaining and inspiring. Why is that not common?
3: Well, oh my word. I love it that those were two questions backed up to each other. (laughs) Like years. Well, first off, you know, in politics, they say follow the money. Uh So I would say the same thing in academics or religion or anything. Sure. The money. Um, Building an institution requires a consistency of funding and you generally get that from saying the same things over and over and creating an enemy of some sort. (laughs) Um, America's falling apart, but we can save its slide into the abyss. Just give money now. Um, And so you rarely build a strong institution by saying, hey, we're growing here and we used to see it this way, but actually this is a better way to see it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That doesn't, That doesn't work well for institution building. So one of the things about a church is in some ways it has the seeds of its own destruction built into it. If you actually do the right thing and you say the courageous thing and you stand up for the the oppressed and downtrodden and you give away your resources for the well-being of those who need it the most, that isn't really great institution building. It's also very life-giving and courageous and it's what the world needs. But if you're always institutions generally bend themselves towards self preservation, how do we keep this thing going? Which is very different question than what does it look like for us to be fully alive? And if we all die in the process, Hey, at least we went down with a smile on our face. Um, and you can see this in company, you can see this in computer companies that are like trying to innovate, but they still have a giant payroll, which sort of, Gets in the way of them doing the next interesting thing. And you can see it all across institutions. Mm-hmm. And then, secondly, what you have to be willing to do is to ask if this thing didn't exist, would we need it? And, like you talk about three hour ceremonies, at some point, at some point back there somewhere, that was deeply meaningful and life giving to someone. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. But what happened for you probably is somebody didn't say, okay, it's 1986, it's 1993, it's 2000. What does it look like for this tradition to be alive and well in this world? Uh And it means we're probably going to have to let go of some things that were pretty central to what we were doing. Because those aren't going to help us anymore, now that it's 2000-whatever. And if you don't do that, you end up with three-hour ceremonies that just don't connect. But if you ask, now, what is underneath all of this ritual and ceremony? What is the human need that this is addressing? Is it community, connection, hope, uh, a sense of language for the transcendent? What does it look like to give people a place for those things that actually works for the world they live in? And... If you don't do that, the tradition sort of ossifies and calcifies and fades away. Wow. Yeah.
0: Well, th- that that explains why I dreaded going to the temple so much.
3: Yeah, exactly. But think about if you would have asked, I always say all doctrine began with mysticism. Every doctrine and dogma, it began with somebody having a genuine new experience. But the problem years later is everybody's disconnected from their experience and all you have is the doctrine and dogma. mm so what was that original experience? And what does it look like now to have those experiences? And what does it look like to have communities that keep those sorts of experiences alive? That Now that gets interesting.
0: You know, the more I talk to you, the more that it feels to me that your work really isn't about religion, but about living a meaningful life.
3: Uh, yes. And I would argue that, going back to your previous questions, what else would religion be in a way but helping people? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's like... People have so lost the plot that that ideally religion would be forms, rituals, rites, gatherings that would simply aid you in living a more meaningful life. Mm. Um, and so when you lose that, you, you've lost the heartbeat of the whole thing. But, yes, we're humans. We're humans before anything else. That's where it starts.
0: So let me ask you this. Uh... I did a brief Google search on you. And one of the things that was really interesting for me uh, was even, you know, from feedback from one of our listeners, was that your work has had some controversy around it, too. And I'd, I'd be really curious about what it is that has resulted in that.
3: You know, starting in probably, well, I don't know when it was, I started, uh, what I, probably early 2000s, I'd go to speak somewhere and there'd be protesters out front, like <laughs> big signs. Like, and by the way, they don't like it if you order them pizza. Um, but having protesters <laughs> and critics, um, I, and one time I went to speak somewhere and a guy had a huge sign and on it it said, Believe in Hell, Not Rob Bell. Wow. <laughs> um, well, if people think they're defending God, they'll say anything, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. There's a particular religious venom that people will spew if they think that you're somehow, uh, you know, you're somehow threatening God or, I don't know. I don't even try to understand the psychology of it. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. It became very normal for me to not be able to go anywhere in public that I wouldn't run into somebody who had, had, was really, especially when we lived in Michigan, who, um, had said pretty nasty things about me. Yeah. So you just have to sort of You know, Whatever you do, don't Google your name.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I've been called a disservice to humanity before.
3: Oh, nice job. Well done there.
0: You you know you're reaching somebody when you do that.
3: Yeah. A friend of mine told me recently she was criticized and she was referred to as an omen of the end times. (laughs) What is that one? Um, Yeah, so I think that uh, apparently there's a number of Christians who find what I do very threatening. When you talk about love and you talk about maybe... Spending all of our energy deciding who's in and who's out is not a good use of time. That can be threatening to people who have built entire systems on deciding who's in and who's out and who's good and who's bad and all that. People can find that a fair bit threatening. Wow, but it's- i I keep going i That's not who I'm here to talk to, obviously, so mm-hmm. uh, I just keep going. And kind of, it's like refrigerator buzz. If I listen really intently, I could probably hear it, but otherwise I have work to do. And I love my work, so I just keep going. Hmm.
0: So one of the things that's also really interesting to me is, I mean, you've really become sort of an iconic figure in the work that you do. I mean, you've really mastered the craft. I know that you've recently been on tour with Oprah. And having been able to share the stage with such a group of visionaries, I'm really interested in hearing what it is that enables the kinds of people that you've been around and people like you to perform at the level that you do.
3: Oh, by the way, I first have to tell you, I was doing a and a with Deepak Chopra. Uh-huh. And I had told a story about a pen, like the story about something that happened to me, this fantastic story about a pen and someone in the crowd, they were passing the mic through the crowd and someone took the mic and said, Deepak, do you have a story like Rob's pen story? And Deepak says, Yes, I do. And then he told a story about his friendship with the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> Rob has a pen story. Deepak has a story about having dinner with George and John. <laughs> oh, unbelievable moment. Unbelievable moment. I have no idea what your question was. Oh, oh. I'll tell you, that tour with Oprah was extraordinary. Elizabeth Gilbert, uh-huh. Nama, um to be with people who had given themselves to their work with such passion and dedication but what really s- strikes me and oprah herself all those people that oprah has interviewed and all those books that she's featured she's actually read the books <laughs> you know what i mean uh-huh. like she, she is she is a true student and i mean oprah asks my kids questions because she's actually interested in their answers. She's, she's the real thing. Um, She's deeply invested in what is the next step for her. And she's actually figuring it out like everybody else. What's the next thing I ought to do with my time? How can I help more people? What is the best use of this energy that I've been given? Um, She's asking questions and reading books and um, having meals with interesting people and finding out how they do it. Um, So that's what really strikes me about sort of uh, with Oprah or Elizabeth Gilbert or Deepak is these are people who are serious about becoming everything that they're called to be, just like the rest of us are. Mm -hmm. And you sort of are amazed at our common humanity because you have this image of them sort of existing on a different plane. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And then you're with them and you're like, oh, everybody is just figuring it out and figuring out what it means to be who they are. Hmm. They're very, very inspiring.
0: Do you think that everybody has this energy that you speak of that's meant to be manifested uh, externally in the world in some way?
3: Yeah, although... One of the most lethal things you can do is compare yourselves to others. Mm -hmm. I used to work, when I first started out, I worked with a dude who went to bed at 2 a.m. and woke up at 6 a.m. He needed four hours of sleep, and he had been a pastor for 25 years, and I remember his first sick day ever was 25 years in. So this guy could go with no vacation, year in and year out, four hours of sleep, and could go and go and go and go. And I remember just thinking his his constitution, his endurance, his the guy was like made of steel. So if you look around you, you'll find somebody smarter, somebody with more energy, somebody who needs less sleep, somebody who can multitask better. I think you're sunk if you spend too much time looking around you. You have to stay true to who you are who the thing, what the thing is you've set out to do and who you aren't just isn't that interesting and who they are in regards to your path just isn't that interesting.
0: Hmm. Yeah. The reason I asked the question, uh, is because I, I just spoken with Donald Miller and for people listening, you'll hear that right after this. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with his work.
3: Oh, Don and I are friends from way back. We were just on the phone the other
0: day. Well, so we were chatting and I asked him, do you think that everybody has this thing that makes them special? And it was really interesting to hear his answer because he said, you know, he had asked a ton of wildly successful people about this question. And of course, nobody wants to look like a jackass when they answer that question and say, yeah, you know, I'm special. Yeah. And he told me a really hilarious story about Pete Carroll. And when he asked Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll said, yeah, of course, I knew that <laughs> right from the get go. And <laughs> when, when I asked him about it, he sa- I said, do you think everybody has this? And he said, no. Which I thought was really interesting because it's it's such a contrast between the two, and I've asked multiple people this same question in different forms the last few weeks, and it's been a really interesting thing to to hear the different perspectives on it
3: yeah, uh, to be honest with you, the people who inspire me the most you've never heard of, and you probably mm. won't hear of. I met a man recently, and I and we were talking because we were introduced by somebody, I said, "What do you do for a living?" He said, "I clean houses and I said. And he said, I love to clean houses. I love to bring order to people's lives. And I said, wow, the people who you work for are really, they're, they're fortunate. And he said, no, 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 I'm fortunate because these people bring me into their homes to help bring order to their lives. It's I'm the one who's honored. <laughs> this, for this guy, cleaning houses is like high art form. Wow. I mean, he puts so many people to shame with his respect for his work. And it's clean houses. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what's just happened for me is the people, when I think about the people, Oprah's awesome mm-hmm. and Deepak and Elizabeth Gilbert are fantastic. The people who have most inspired me are people, the guy who works at the auto repair where I get my oil changed, he always makes me laugh. I love to get the oil changed in my car because I'm going to see Jim. You know what I mean? And, like, he runs the front desk at the place where they fix, they change the oil in my car. The people who actually move me are not on stages and don't have microphones and don't have websites and podcasts. Mm -hmm. They're people who they're doing something and they do it each day and they do it with love and integrity. And so that's why sometimes there's this sort of, well, you have to be a superstar. But when I think about the stories that move me the most, it's generally people just doing things that we consider mundane, but they've tapped into like, it's almost like they tapped into an electrical current that's running through the daily and the mundane and the, the everyday.
0: Mm. You know, it's interesting. Uh, people ask me often how I select guests for the show and you know, what it is that drives it. And it's often just morbid curiosity. And when somebody asks me who are your favorite guests, it's never sort of household names or famous people. Right. They're always the least expected people that you've never heard of that have the most inspiring and amazing stories.
3: Right. There's a family I know. They went to the foster care office and said, all of the kids that nobody wants with the worst problems and the biggest disabilities, please give them to us. And I think at this point they've had 26, 27 kids in their home that they have raised. And you'll never hear about them. And when you're with them, it's like you're in the presence of greatness. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and they, will, they have taken in kids that everybody had abandoned. And then they'll say to you, oh, yeah, Johnny, we can't imagine life without Johnny. And no one wanted Johnny. Um, yeah, the number of people I've met who, no one, who will never be on a stage who are, that's the thing. I'm totally with you on that. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I I think that makes a a really sort of interesting way to to start closing up our conversation. So I have one last question for you, uh, which is how we finish all our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. Great. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
3: When nobody else could have done that but them. Mm. And it's not a giant deed or climbing Mount Everest or accomplishing something that's never been accomplished. It's when it's so uniquely that person that you think, oh my word, that is them in a nutshell. That was it right there. Only they could have done that. That's what's unmistakable to me. And it's run through their unique flesh and blood. And that's just endlessly fascinating.
0: It's funny. You may be the one and only person who has echoed my exact sentiments. About what it means to be unmistakable. Score! Literally, those are, I I mean, I, I could pull it up for you and read it from my book, How I Define Unmistakable, because I was asked to do it for my book proposal.
3: Oh, nice. Nice.
0: And it's almost word for word exactly what you said.
3: Oh, that's great.
0: So, good. Well, hey, Rob, this has been really, really cool. Uh, I am very, very thrilled that Dave Vanderveen connected us, and uh, oh, as I expected, this would be it was really just a fascinating chat about life and everything else that really matters.
3: Oh, that's so great! Are you coming uh, to San Diego tour stop?
0: I will probably be there now after this conversation. Awesome. So, good.
3: Well, give me a shout, and I'll put you on guest list.
0: We'll do. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you've just discovered us this week in iTunes, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and tune in Wednesday for our conversation with author Donald Miller. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.